Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas, Feliz Navidad, Happy Holy Days, Joyful Noel, Festive Greetings, and Yuletide Greetings to you and Yorn, as Jason is fond of saying. Uh, and we began with another quiz this morning. I want to go back to the survey question I asked a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple weeks ago to see if things have changed uh, now that we're seven days out from Christmas. Two questions I want to hear from you in your answer, all right, loud and clear. How many of you are super psyched, full of the Christmas spirit? All right, how many of you are still trying to get there? Interesting. Well, I'm finally there. We, uh, we finally got the tree up, uh, fake, pre-lit, of course, uh, got the mantle decorated, the Fontini manger scene on the dining room table looks like a Bethlehem Christmas bazaar. That's it. Karen did a great job on that. We got three Moravian stars hanging uh, on our back porch window, some extra icicles hanging in the arch of our front porch. And so, yep, I'm, I'm finally there. And if you're not there, time is running out. Come on. All right. Now, we're going to take a break from our study through the book of James this morning. And uh, this being Christmas and all. And I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a theme that I have not been able to get out of my mind uh, since we entered the Advent season. And as you know, one of the most prominent themes, if not the dominant theme of Christmas, is this whole uh, promise of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, it's on, um, it's on Christmas cards. And we know that the angels brought, brought that message uh, first. And then we uh, see that this peace truly is peace for the world. It's peace for all nations and all peoples. And then you have, uh, it shows up in the dove, peace on earth, international sign of peace, I guess. And of course, you got to get the Peanuts gang involved. And uh, so, by the way, who is this character from Peanuts? No, it is not Lucy. Lucy has black hair. Sally Brown, Charlie Brown's little sister. <laughs> Come on. All right. Now, uh, and, then, um, and then, of course, uh, peace on earth focuses on, on Jesus, doesn't it? But the problem with Christmas is that the, the peace of Christmas sometimes gets lost in the mad rush to the malls and uh, the truckload of Amazon packages coming to your front porch, and, and uh, then you have to open them all, and you have to decide if you're going to keep them or send them back, and you got parties to go to and presents to wrap and extra stuff on your schedule. Um, maybe you have to fix uh, more food because you got people coming to your house, or maybe you're trying to figure out how to get packed and to, and to leave on time to get ready to go see people that you love. In a lot of ways, there's nothing really peaceful about the Christmas season, but still, Christmas is the season where we remember that one of the main reasons that God sent Jesus into the world was to bring us peace, and we sing about it in carols, of course, like, hark the herald angels sing in the line, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, and in O holy night, truly he taught us to love one another, his law is love and his gospel is peace, yes. And the promise of peace shows up in um, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, um, Joy to the World, Joy to the World. Um, but when you look around at the world, we don't see the promised peace on earth, at least not in the way the Bible describes it. 
In uh, 2003, journalist Chris Hedges set out to determine whether there have been any sustained periods of peace in human history. He defined war as any active conflict that has taken the lives of more than a thousand people. And he reviewed 3,400 years of history and discovered that there were just uh, 268 war-free years. That might sound like a lot, but that's just 90% of recorded history is marked by war and rumors of war. And right now, there are more than 40 active conflicts going on in our world today. And then when you think about our country and how divided we are, there's very little peace. And then what about in your own life? I mean, are you dealing with some kind of conflict in a relationship or, uh, or at work or with a personal strub- struggle that's robbing you of peace? I mean, for many uh, of you, the circumstances in your life make it hard to actually experience peace. And so, so when we think about Advent, do we really think of Christmas time as being uh, the most peaceful time of the year? I, I, I think not. not, not for many of us. Now, you might be here this morning, and, and maybe you're not really into this whole church thing. Uh, maybe it just doesn't seem all that relevant to you. Um, maybe uh, this is uh, maybe this whole thing just seems like wishful thinking, or maybe this is one of those things you know that makes you feel like that uh, Christians are a half bubble off plumb. Um, because I mean, you, you were all singing about peace on earth and all of this kind of thing, and you're going really uh, honestly, where, where, where is this peace that you Christians you sing about? And believe me, I understand that skepticism. And uh, I'm just going to ask you if you would hold on, just kind of stay with me for a few minutes, 30 minutes or so, because before I attempt to answer that question, where is the peace that we sing about, I, I want to go back and show you very clearly uh, in the Christmas story, God's promise of peace. And there's no better place to start than Dr. Luke's familiar telling of the Christmas story, in Luke chapter two, it should be read every Christmas, so we're gonna read it this morning. I wanna suggest that you just close your eyes and listen, maybe try to put yourself into the story. As hard as it is, try to listen for the first time. Luke chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in that same region, there were shepherds out of the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. And so begins the Christmas story. Of course, there's a whole lot we could look at here. We could dig into the historical background, and I've done that at Christmas time, and probably will do it in the future. There's the census, and there's Bethlehem, and there's Joseph and Mary, and the shepherds, and the angels, and the manger. But as I said, this Christmas season, my mind and heart have been captured by the angelic proclamation of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, a couple of weeks back, Karen and I went to see the new uh, sight and sound film um, entitled, I Heard the Bells, and it was great. And I gotta confess to you, I, I shed lots of tears in that movie. Now, I'm just curious, how many of you cry at movies? All right, here's the big question, how many men cry at movies? Okay, well, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your honesty. We had recently gone to, with some friends to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to the Sight and Sound Theater to see the play David. And I tell you, I have uh, seen Phantom of the Opera uh, on Broadway, and it was amazing, but it didn't compare to this play on David, uh, on the life of David. And uh, anyway, when we were there, they showed the trailer for their first ever movie, I Heard the Bells, and it's based on the life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and we actually saw it at the Hollywood 20, and I checked last night, and it's still on if you want to go see it. Now, here's the movie's summary. This is the blurb that they put out to accompany the movie. Known as America's poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow leads an idyllic uh, life until the day his world is shattered by tragedy. With a nation divided by civil war and his family torn apart, Henry puts down his pen. The sound of Christmas morning, though, reignites the poet's lost voice and rekindles his faith. And he writes this poem, which in some ways is kind of a, a summary story of, of his life. He wrote the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, with its echoing refrain, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men which later was set to music and, and of course, has become one of our um, most loved and cherished Christmas carols. And that movie, along with my uh, reading and reflection on Luke 2 and the prophecies of Isaiah, um, stimulated by some uh, intentional devotional reading in, in Isaiah, that's, that, that line, peace on earth, goodwill to men, has, has caused me to... Uh, do a deep dive, which I'm going to take you with me this morning on that. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, that's the old King James language. Uh, our ESVs and NIVs and NLTs say something along the line of glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those in whom he's well pleased. And scholars have debated for years and years and years which translation is is closest to the original. Which of the thousands of copied manuscripts is most accurate to the original? But of course, in reality, both are true. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, focuses more on the international peace in our world, peace between nations, peace in the creation itself. Whereas peace among those in whom he's well pleased focuses more on personal, spiritual peace, peace between God and people, and the inner peace that peace with God brings. And both are true. But the scriptures, especially the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, 
They seem to have more to say about the Messiah bringing peace to our crazy, chaotic, violent, war-torn world than it does about personal peace, which, again, is important. And I'll preach one Christmas on personal peace because that's part of it too. But for today, I'm gonna read with the old King James and we're gonna unpack peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, a moment ago, after reading Luke's familiar version of the Christmas story, I said, and so begins the Christmas story, but that wasn't quite true, was it? The Christmas story actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, all the way back to Eden, all the way back uh, to Genesis 3, the messianic prophecy in Genesis 3, given after Adam and Eve sinned and the whole world fell into the darkness and chaos of sin and death. The promise was that one day God would send a savior who would crush the head of the evil one and reverse the curse and set the world right again. And it certainly did need to be set right again because what we see going forward after the fall was that there was no peace on earth. We read about murder and violence and immorality and, and, and injustice and oppression. And as things continued to digress, you see nations fighting nations and, and nations conquering peoples and oppressing peoples. And in the land of Israel, there were only, in its history, there were only sparse times of peace in the land. And for hundreds of years, God's people longed for a savior to come who would save them from their sin and from their oppressive enemies. Now, fast forward uh, to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ, and in Isaiah's day, the ancient people of Israel didn't need a journalist to tell them that their lives were plagued by wars and rumors of wars. They had lots of firsthand experience, trauma-inducing experience with conflict and violence and war and oppression. But what they did need was a prophet who could provide for them a vision of God's peace vivid enough to counter the horrific war-torn images that had become burned into their memories. And Isaiah brought them and us a vision of that peace. And really, out of all of God's prophets, Isaiah gives us the clearest picture of the peace that God's Messiah will bring into the world. Now, there's lots of scriptures, and we can't look at them all. In fact, I, Isaiah talks about the Messiah bringing peace on earth in chapter 2, 4, 7, 9, 11, 35, 42, 49, 50, 52, 53, 61, hike. And, um, and, and that's just a few of them. And, and by the way, you didn't have to scramble to get that down. All, this is in the sermon notes, so you can look back at that. But we're going to look at five of them today. And I'm going to read a lot of scripture because I want you to see this collage prophecy, this collage vision that Isaiah puts together about the peace that the angels said was coming when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we'll start with Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 5. I'll put this on the screen. Isaiah writes, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will flow into it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of law, the Lord from Jerusalem. 
and he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord is this vision. Let us walk in light of that vision. Now this is a vision of messianic peace. And I want you to think about the poetic images here. All the nations come streaming together to the mountain of God. And that's where Messiah judges between nations and settles disputes, resolving not only wars, but also their underlying causes. And that's where he establishes peace through righteous justice. And then look what happens when all the peoples of the earth find themselves in the presence of God's Messiah. The swords and spears that they have brought to the mountain, weapons uh, that they've long assumed were necessary for their survival, all of a sudden those weapons seem so out of place. And so the people lay down their weapons of war and they work together to hammer their weapons into farming tools. Now Isaiah isn't naive, he's seen the brutality uh, that uh, can and does characterize our world. He knows that at that very moment, horrific war and destruction are camped just outside the borders of Israel. He knows that the Assyrian army is about to attack and, and conquer God's people, and he knows that the destruction and the devastation that will be caused by that defeat by the Assyrian army will throw the people into dark despair. But he remembers and he trusts in the promises that God made to Abraham and to David, the promise of peace. And he holds out this, this vision of, of, of a vibrant, peace-infused future that God has planned for his people. And look at this. As he holds out this vision of future peace, he calls the people to live their lives, to order their lives around the hope of this vision for the future when he says, oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of this vision of the Lord. And it is this very peace that Isaiah describes here that will one day cause the angels to break forth in singing, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now look with me at Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, so we've just looked at nations now look what happens in the world. Even the wilderness and the desert, Isaiah 35, 1. Even the wilderness and the desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice in the blossom and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing for joy. And the deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon and as lovely as Mount Carmel and the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory the splendor of our gods. He, 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 says, he says, with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with, who, with, who have fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear for the Lord your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you and when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will spring, sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. 
And then down in verse 10, he says, those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return and they will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they will be filled with joy and gladness. So you see in this, this, the messianic vision of peace on earth is becoming clearer and clearer. And what you see here is that the peace that the Messiah brings is more than the end of international conflict and the cessation of war. What you see is that all of God's creation, all of nature, all of humanity are restored to the peace of Eden. We see the healing of nature and humanity and it's all woven together. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. And shalom is a beautiful word that conveys the ideas of wholeness and harmony and health. Shalom is the transformation of all the things that lead to war in the first place. And when shalom is established once and for all, everything will function the way it was created to function. Everything will be as it is supposed to be, supposed to be. Author, theologian, professor Cornelius Plantinga uh, describes shalom this way in his book, not the way it's supposed to be. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitly em fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So yeah, Isaiah says, in that day, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap like a deer, and the mute shout for joy. All creation which groans now for its redemption, all creation will be healed as water will gush forth in the wilderness and the wilderness will rejoice and blossom like many flowers. So Isaiah 35 points, uh, excuse me, paints this picture of this comprehensive peace, this shalom of, of creational, physical, emotional, relational, racial, spiritual healing, where we, you and me, you and I, will celebrate walking in God's ways, where we, uh, playing off uh, a popular author's newest book, where we will sing loud and be happy. And uh, notice again, the vision of the future that Isaiah gives us here, he says it's something that we should hold on to and that we should encourage one another with. Verse three, with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with, who, who have fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, for God is coming to destroy your enemies and he's coming to save you. And when you look at our nation today, when you look at our world today, does it, at times just exhaust you with worry and anxiety and despair? Does it, does it sometimes make you feel hopeless and weak in the knees? I mean, when you see the trajectory of the way things are headed in our world, does it make your heart fearful? Isaiah says, there is a peace that we, you and I, all of those who have trusted Jesus as their savior or king, there is this vibrant vision of shalom that's ours now in part, but will one day be the future we will inhabit. 
And that's what Isaiah is describing. Oh, listen, heaven, the kingdom of God is much more than golden streets and pearly gates. What we're seeing, Isaiah is unpacking where we're gonna be for all eternity. And again, again, it is this very peace that lay behind the angel's song, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, we read of the Messiah's birth, very familiar passage of scripture for many of you. I'm not gonna unpack this in great detail, but it has to be a part of Isaiah's vision collage of what our future is. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There it is. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So there it is. I, I hear you. Prince of Peace? His government of peace? Where is that? Where is it? I hear you. Hold on. We got a little bit more to unpack before I answer the question. Isaiah is going to go into more detail about telling us who this Prince of Peace really is and how God will establish peace on earth through this child, through this son. Now, I'm going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 11, and I, again, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes or just listen. I'm not putting this on the screen. I just want you to listen. Uh, uh, for hundreds of years, the Bible was read and people heard it and took it in. That's what I'm asking you to do. Isaiah 11 one through 10, talking about the Messiah who's coming. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from an old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the oppressed. The earth will shake at the force of his wind, of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of cobras. Yes, a little child will put his hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. So, so kids, like one day, you'll be able to have a cobra as a pet. <laughs> Yay! And it won't bite you and won't spit in your eyes. Okay, so... In Isaiah's day, the promises that God made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, the promises of a lasting and God-blessed kingdom of peace, those promises seem to be broken or fantasy or wishful thinking. Because at this point in time, the house of David resembled the stump of a chopped down tree. But Isaiah says, God says that in the future, from that dry stump, a spirit-filled branch would come who we know to be Jesus, the son of David, 
and he will bring peace, shalom, to both Jews and Gentiles, and he will stand as the rallying flag to unite hostile nations. And in that day, the whole earth will go back to the way it was in the garden in Eden, back to the way it was, back to the way it's supposed to be. King Jesus will subdue all creation. And look at this, the violent nature of lions and leopards and wolves and bears and cobras will be transformed so that nothing in God's creation will bring harm to men, women, or children. And in this glorified world of the new creation, we will find ultimate satisfaction for our deepest longings of justice and peace. Verse nine, Isaiah says, nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lived lives will be a glorious place. Don't you long for that day? You, you're already there in a sense. And finally, and finally, Isaiah 42 to 53 fleshes out our understanding of the coming one who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth, God's servant who will save God's people from their sins through his own suffering, which no one in all of the history of Israel, all the way up to and through Jesus' day, could have ever imagined Messiah suffering. So Isaiah takes us from the Messiah's birth, through his life, his spirit-filled character, his ministry, and now to his suffering and death. Isaiah 53, one to, one to 12, here's what he says. He begins like this, who has believed what he's heard from us? Who has believed all of these things I've just said and read to you from Isaiah? Who believes that? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, he's talking about the Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken, for the transgressions of God's people. They made his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there had been no deceit in his mouth, but it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. But out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied because of what he suffered. Because of what he suffered, my righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted, declared righteous, and he shall bear their sins. Yes, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. 
This is the centerpiece of Isaiah's vision. Each part of the Prince of Peace story is filled with great peace and meaning. And we see here how the promised one will triumph through his own death to bring about this peace. Physically, he would be marred and pierced and crushed and disfigured. Emotionally, his soul would be crushed, weighed down with sorrow and anguish and suffering. Socially, he would be despised and oppressed, uh, his body broken. He would be rejected. He came to his own people and they refused to receive him. They received him not. And Isaiah says, it was, all of this was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. But why? For what purpose? Because upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. (laughs) Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. He would carry the cross to shoulder our grief. He would suffer on that cross to bear our sins and to remove our guilt and shame. He would die on that cross to take the judgment we so rightly deserved into himself. All these Old Testament messianic prophecies, these scriptures point to a God-sent servant, priest, and king who would offer himself up as the one one and only ultimate sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And through his suffering and death, he would set the wheels in motion so that one day his government of peace would be set up on the earth. And in the New Testament writings, both Philip and Peter see Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies. And Peter follows Isaiah's example of exhorting us to endure suffering because the path of suffering was first walked by our Savior. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself is our peace. He brought us peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separates one people from another. Do you hear what I hear? Do you you now see all that lay behind the angel's song of peace on earth, goodwill to men? I, I, I wish for one year we could cast all the sentimental, nostalgic thoughts of Christmas aside and focus on the fact that that baby in the manger that was the inauguration of God's peace in the world, it was, we have that peace because he died a gruesome, violent death. The suffering Isaiah describes here is what awaited that peace-bringing baby we sing about in Christmas carols. That's the, and the suffering Isaiah describes here in chapter 53 would become that sword that would pierce Mary's heart. Okay, so back to the question we answered in the beginning. Where is the promised peace of Christmas? And here's the answer. The promised peace of Christmas is now and it's not yet. It's now and it's not yet. It's here now, offered to all of us right here, right now. We can have that peace by living into a trusting relationship with Jesus. He is our peace now. 
And if you do not know what I'm talking about when I say a trusting relationship with Jesus, I encourage you to drop by uh, the prayer nook over here. What is it even called? I can't even remember, but the prayer station over here. And there are some people over there that can explain it to you and would, would love to pray with you about that. It's here now for those who live in a trusting relationship with Jesus, but it's not yet here in full. Now, when Jesus walked this earth, we got glimpses of it. When, as Isaiah foretold, Jesus opened the eyes of the blind and unplugged the ears of the deaf, we got taste of the future shalom uh, when Jesus stilled the storm, peace be still, and, and, and multiplied the loaves and fishes. We got a sneak peek when Jesus caused the lame to leap like a deer and, and, and caused those who couldn't speak to sing for joy. We got another sneak peek, other sneak peeks, when Jesus conquered Satan's power by casting out demons uh, from those who were oppressed by the evil one. And, our, and, and we still get glimpses and tastes of it today, but they're only glimpses and tastes. The promised shalom is not yet here in full. Our world is still broken. Our world is still full of disease and violence and injustice and oppression. There's still wars and rumors of wars. Our lives are torn apart by all kind of division, relational and political and national and, and racial. And all creation still groans in pain, waiting for its redemption. But the day that Isaiah foresaw, that day is coming. Its coming has been guaranteed because of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension back into heaven and he's coming again to set right all this wrong with this world and to set up his government of peace to the ends of the earth. So yes, this peace on earth that Isaiah tells us about and that the angels sing, sing about, uh, sung about when Jesus was born. Yes, it's here now, but it's not yet here in full. But it will be and it most definitely is your future. It is our future. So I say with Isaiah, with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those who, with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies and he will save you. With Isaiah, I say, come, let us walk in the light of this vision of the Lord. But what exactly does that mean? As we, as we live here in the now of the peace, but the not yet of its final fulfillment. Well, there's a very specific application here. Author Jonathan Martin suggests in his book, Prototype, that because the Prince of Peace has given us his spirit, he says we are called to be people from the future. We are called to be people from the future who practice shalom in our lives and in our neighborhoods and in our world here and now. In other words, listen, your destiny is your identity. Your destiny is your identity. God means for your future to define you now. And so we're to live today as people transported back in time from God's future shalom, meaning we're called to bring the future into the present in the way that we live our lives here and now 
And that means that this future that we've looked at, it's not a fantasy, it's not a pipe dream. For those with eyes of faith, it's a present reality. It's a present reality. Herbert McCabe Law writes, the business of the church is to remember the future, but not merely to remember that there is to be a future, but to mysteriously make the future really present. So in looking back to Christmas, we actually are looking forward to the promised peace on earth, and we live our lives now pursuing peace and goodwill toward all people. Now here's the question that can bring all this down to where you and I live right now in the hustle and bustle of Christmas and in all the unpeaceful situations we find ourselves in. The question is this, what attitude or action can I take that would move whatever the situation is, whatever the conversation is, what attitude or action can I take that would move this situation, this conversation toward wholeness and harmony for everyone and everything involved? Like if I was living as a person of the future, how would I bring that future into that situation, into that conversation? Now think about that as applied to your closest relationships. Think about that as applied to your marriage. Think of that question applied to difficult family members who are coming for Christmas. Think about that question as it relates to what you're gonna face over the next seven days. In other words, if my destiny is really, really my identity, then how do I live out God's future peace in my life right here and right now? And I know, I know, it, it, it's hard. Some, sometimes life just beats you down. Sometimes trials and troubles suck the life out of you. Sometimes it's really hard to reconcile the promised peace of Christmas with the lack of peace in our world and in our lives. I get that. But you know, that's exactly what caused Longfellow to write these words when he couldn't reconcile what was going on in his life and in his world with God's promises of peace on earth. Longfellow writes, in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He was beaten down by, by the tragic events of his life and the horrors of the Civil War. And Longfellow lived in that dark, silent despair for over two years. And he woke up one Christmas morning in 1864 and he heard church bells ringing and somehow something changed and his heart was renewed his faith was rekindled and he wrote, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, it's hard to imagine how someone so battered by tragedy could regain their grasp on hope and believe once again in Christmas peace because nothing in his life had changed. He still bore physical scars from what he had gone through. Nothing in his circumstances had changed. But his heart changed. How did his heart change? How can your heart change? The only way it's possible 
is to take hold of the promises of God, his promises of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and refuse to let go of what is yours now that you will live in later and you hold on to those promises no matter what happens to you, no matter what has happened to you. And that's what changed Longfellow's heart. It's true, most often at Christmas time we tend to look back, which is right and true. But what what if this Christmas made us look forward? What if this Christmas caused us to live forward? Because when, you see, when God sent Jesus to us on that night, on that not so silent night in the little town of Bethlehem, he was looking forward to reestablishing the world that he had in mind from the very beginning. He was looking forward to the way things ought to be, the, things, uh, the way things were supposed to be, the, things, the way they will be when there's peace on earth and goodwill to men when God and sinners are reconciled, when joyful all you nations rise and join the triumph in the skies, when people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and race with angelic hosts proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace at last and goodwill to men. Your destiny is your identity. What does that look like in your life this week. Holy Father, this Christmas, teach us to live as people from the future, to live now as we will live then, and Holy Spirit, work in us to that end. And I pray that we might be instruments of peace on earth and goodwill to everyone we find ourselves in conversation with and in relationship with And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.